Hello and welcome to this week's episode from A Lancashire Lass with me, Lucy Baxter, as featured on BBC Radio 4 Extra's Podcast Hour, BBC Radio Manchester and also now BBC Radio Lancashire. Joining me today is author John D. Rutter. We are going to be chatting all about his new book, approval and some of the themes and why he decided to write this book so John welcome to the podcast how are you today hi Lucy yeah, great to meet you yeah um, and, and hopefully this this links nicely to a couple of other episodes on the podcast that a friend of mine Sarah Schofield was talking to you about her new book just a couple of weeks ago and he did a great piece with the Lancashire Blackpool Adoption Agency people what about two months ago was it a few weeks ago So hopefully you can link to some of those themes. Yeah. Why don't we sort of go back and you tell me how you got into writing and and how you developed that passion? Sure. So this is completely the opposite story to Sarah's because I think she was saying like as soon as she could hold a pencil, she was writing. Uh, I was kind of forced to give up creative and arty things at about 15 or 16. I didn't even do an A-level in English. And there's a story in approval that that is a a sort of a bit of poetic license, but relates to a real experience of not not writing at all in any way. I'm not even reading very much until I was in my 40s. And I actually had a business career and then I sort of walked out in a, in a fit of peak and said, I don't want to do this anymore. I've done that, you know, and I found myself in the summer, a free summer, not knowing what to do. And I actually went to Preston's College, first of all, to a course that was sort of introduction to creative writing. And a nice chap called Chris Ford there gave me encouragement. And so I applied to Lancaster University to do a proper degree and started writing short stories there. And, and it just began there. But I, maybe if I become famous, I'll, I'll come up with some phrases about there was, I've always had a burning desire to express all the creative things within me. But actually, I didn't write a word until I was 46. Wow. Not, not a single word. I'm not talking about, oh, well, it was only a minor thing. I didn't keep a diary. You know, I didn't write anything at all. And then I enjoyed the time at Lancaster and made friends. We still have a group now that meets and shares each other's work. And as a result of that, I then went to Edge Hill University to do a PhD. Again, short story. And it kind of built from there. And I've published a few individual stories. And then last year, I was very pleased to win the Northbound Book Award for approval, which really was to begin with a collection of short stories, but has so many connecting themes, mm. it evolved into a novel. And so here we are with it with a book. Yeah. And this is your first novel, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And you touched on then the Northbound Prize. Why don't you talk to me about what what that is and, and why you won that? Yeah, so New Writing North every year run a series of competitions and there are I think there are about eight or ten prizes and the particular one the northbound book is it's your first book and J.A. Mensah won it the first year the year before me with a novel um, 
this year. Uh, it's actually more creative non-fiction. Adam Farah's is not fiction, but it felt like it, a better chance to get into publishing than you know sending off to London agents or trying to contact a big publisher who just aren't interested. And there's quite a strong industry of you know of independent publishers in the north. Um, people like Sarah Band, who are publishing my book, of course, Comma Press, who Sarah's publisher, and lots of lots of others, Dead Ink, Blue Moose. There are lots of independent publishers, so it, it felt like a realistic mm. route into the publishing industry as a northern writer that just might not be available otherwise. How did you feel oh. when you found out you'd won? Oh, it was fantastic, because you have that experience, and any writer, you, you'll have talked to lots of authors, you send your work off and you never hear again. And you submit to short story competitions and, and so far i think i've won 100 quid a couple of times you know in yeah. short story competitions you know and you know and, and a book voucher and a, and a box of leaks but <laughs> you, you don't you, you're just waiting for that opportunity and what i learned and i'll confess many times you think oh this is a waste of time i'm, I'm not going to carry on but i did just keep sending off and keep persevering until you get that break and somebody says oh I can see the potential in this because it, it's a book about something mm. yeah and I'm gonna read the blurb just so listeners can sort of have a have a flavor of it for the bit that's in this release so approval follows would-be parents David and Cece through a series of forays into their past as they try to become approved as adopters following many years of disappointment Told in episodes, David's story builds a picture of hope and fear as he is put under intense and often intrusive scrutiny in a battle against faceless bureaucracy. From family background and early experiences to adult relationship history, David is forced to dig up incidents of violence and drama, all in the hope of being approved by an adoption authority. Tackling the potentially painful and lonely journey of trying to embark on family life, this brave novel is viewed from a perspective rarely explored in fiction, a man's response to involuntary childlessness, raising questions about how much intervention and judgment is necessary for the state to ascertain fitness to parent. Approval ultimately leaves the reader to decide whether or not they approve. And the book was written at a time when there are 70,000 plus uh, children in care in the UK, which increases year on year. Um, it sounds incredibly interesting, and it's also the first novel to describe adoption from the would-be adopter's perspective. Yeah. Where did you get the idea from? Well, I have to suppose tell you the anecdote of how it came about, and there is a connection to real life. So I'm there. I am at Edge Hill University, and I two supervisors, Roger Glass and Kim Wiltshire, and and. They share out responsibilities and Roger was looking at a lot of individual stories and he kept telling me, don't worry about how they fit together into a collection. They'll, that'll just appear later on. Kim was away on sabbatical and came back after some months and looked at this bunch of about 25 stories and said, oh, you're writing two different types of stories. Maybe you need to sit down and do that morning pages thing, find out if there's some emotional thing that's driving you and maybe that'll give you a focus. And in one of those things, when, when writers say this, oh, I wrote the entire thing in a fortnight, I, I was 
dislike people saying that, but that's literally what happened, that I sat down and wrote down, if you like, the first thoughts in my mind in the morning. And it turns out what was dominating my life was the real life process of applying to adopt a child. Mm. And in ways that I hadn't understood, that was really impacting on me emotionally. Because it's quite an invasive process and it draws up your history, your background, if my parents were ill and they had to reflect on the parental relationship. There are lots of things that it, all of a sudden there was an emotional engine to it. And then at the same time, uh, if I was to put all of these stories together in a group, I could use an imaginary set of application forms to connect them together. And now I've got a shape for the whole thing. And and of course, the third and, and from a publisher's point of view, most useful thing is now it's a book about something. So whilst it's still fundamentally the exploration of a life of a character, well, it's also about an important social issue. And I think at the time we applied, we're going back uh, six, seven years, there were 70,000 children in care. I think it's, I think it's nearer to 80,000 now mm. every year. So all of a sudden, those things came together and I literally had to finish the first and last stories and had a full draft in about 48 hours. It only took 10 years and 48 hours to write. And when you were writing it, did it sort of bring back things of when you were going through that time? Was it quite, again, an emotional period of, of writing it or not? Well, yes, but I suppose it was more that the individual chapters, episodes, stories, call them what you, what you like, are tell us about your childhood, tell us about your previous relationship. Have you ever suffered loss? Have you ever encountered uh, violence? Have you ever dealt with addiction? The sorts of things that may need to be asked. And so it did cause me to go in the individual stories quite deep into memories and opinions and things like oh, tell us about your family and at a, at a time when both of my parents were old and ill so yes there is an emotional part uh, although there's also a distance in effect because now I was constructing something that was I suppose separate from me mm. and, and David so has had some similar experiences to me but obviously he's a he's a fictional character yeah and you obviously heard about this podcast from listening to the um, Lancashire County Council Fostering and Adoption team coming on. Um, I was shocked when they were sort of explaining how easy it is to adopt in terms of you need to be over 21, I think it was, and you have to have a spare bed. And then obviously there's the other checks, but that was sort of the criteria, you know, no one was too old. Um, what, did, what did you feel about that in terms of what they were saying? Yeah, I thought it was a very thoughtful piece and and I would encourage people to apply. And the thing that they were quite clear about, and I agree in my own experience, it is a very inclusive process. There's, there's no barriers that would stop any particular category or age or circumstances. It is very open. There's just a lot of stuff you have to go through. So things that I've addressed in approval and in one or two places I've tried to make it comical as well as serious, that, that yes, in fact, you do have to go through your previous relationships and your family and criminal records checks and financial checks. 
and, and maybe some of the time when the fire brigade turns up to do a safety check, you think is all of this absolutely necessary? But the truth is all of those checks are necessary and they are straightforward. So as long as somebody goes into it with an open mind and prepared to answer all those questions, there's no reason why any person can't or any couple can't apply and successfully be added to the still quite short list of approved adopters. So yeah. I thought it was a thoughtful piece because, because they talked about, yes, you do have to go through these processes, but you know, the, the fictional character David, and to a degree me in real life, well, okay, you've got some history if you're 50, but we met people who sailed through the process in a few weeks because it can be quite straightforward. And of course, the other thing that I was, I was angered by actually, the, the government issued a paper, I think about three months ago saying, a big press release saying, oh, they're going to level up because that's the buzzword about everything make the process more inclusive it was already inclusive and address training issues and everyone i encountered and certainly the professionals that you talk to are experienced heavily qualified people who know what to do know the sensitivities and the competence of doing it i think it was a bit naughty of the government to claim credit that they were going to improve this process when as far as i can see the greatest reason for delays is that they're spectacularly under-resourced with massive caseloads it, there's nothing, no question about the ability or the attitude or the competence of, of the professionals doing that process. So I would encourage people to apply. And nine times out of ten, it's going to be very straightforward. It just does involve, you know, there are some forms and some documents and some training things that actually can be quite useful experiences anyway. And you titled it approval, which, you know, it's going through the process of <clears throat> whether David and Cece are approved to be adopted um, adopters for children. Were there any other names that you 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 were you had in mind, or that you were sort of bouncing off when you were having a think of your title, or was it always going to be approval? It's an interesting question. I think because there were so many different ways that I might have collected together at work. I, I had all sorts of different shapes and sizes, but from the po point where I knew it was about this and it was this collection of stories and that it was going to become a novel, it was always approval because I like the idea of a short, punchy title. And fundamentally, it is about approval, if you like, in the former sense of the bureaucracy. And by the way, I, I did smile when you you slipped on the word bureaucracy because I, I did a piece recently in the big issue famous books about bureaucracy and I promise you I still can't spell it now <laughs> I, if I've written it down a thousand times it's a theme of my book can't spell it to save my life but there's there's that real part of it but at the same time yeah the, there is a yeah, I suppose there's a, a creative and, and personal aspect as well yeah when you were writing it and sort of the structure of a novel compared to short stories that you were used to, did you start at the very beginning? Did you do the middle bit? I know you said you sort of wrote it quite quickly. Did it sort of go from start to finish? Well, I have this structure now. Okay, I'm going to ask these 14 questions. Tell us about your childhood. Tell us about school. We'd like to know about your parents. Show us your banking statements. So I already had a shape and that sort of naturally formed. And the first story 
called motivation, which compares you know, uh, the man's role in reproductive medicine with how intrusive it can be for a woman to go through IVF. I, I already had a draft of that story. So the shape naturally formed, but it was really interesting in the editing process with Saraband Books and the editor, Craig Hillsley. Uh, and Craig has a really great clarity at the overall level and picked up on, you know, perhaps one or two of the chapters, there was a change of point of view or that jarred in terms of, of pace or mood. And so we swapped a few things around to make it feel more like a single narrative of a, of a novel. But of course it always would have, because it's a quest for approval, it already naturally has the shape of a novel. It's, they set off on a quest to, that ultimately, at the end, has to come to a conclusion of success or failure. And the reader, as you read in a novel, is maybe they're you know, being quite sympathetic about the main character. Maybe they're a bit concerned about some of his history. But I, I want you to be kind of on the fence until the very end where you approve of the character. Would you approve of him? Is he, is he going to succeed or is he not? And I think those are things that you can do over the length of a novel, less so in a short story. But what, if I might just add something as a thought to that, quite a few of the pieces were actually swapped around because there were, if you like, some literary flourishes and devices that you can do in a short story. You can format page differently, the, the dialogue's on the right-hand side. Mm. You can have a device of, imagine you are a moth in a kitchen watching this scene. Those things don't really work in a novel because they jump out too much. So we, we have had a conversation, it's quite an interesting idea if I was to revisit this and say, how different would it be if it was short stories? What if you had different episodes or different versions? So that's, that's a thought perhaps for next year. Yeah. That, 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 that your question about form and structure, short story versus novel, I think, and Sarah talks about this as well, it's really interesting to, to continue to explore that and be involved in the narrative about uh, where do you draw the line? When, when is this a bunch of stories? When is it a composite novel? And when yeah. is it a novel? And what, how would you compare two different versions of it? Yeah, and it was interesting what you said then, where you said that if you looked... You know, if you looked at it again, what you would maybe do differently, what you would change. I, I guess is that quite a difficult part of being an author. Sort of once it's been published, looking back, going, "Oh, I'd have used a different adjective there," or "Oh, oh yeah." There's there's a yeah. lovely quote, a lovely quote from one of my lecturers at uh, Lancaster University, Jen Ashworth. I hope she, I hope I don't misquote, but she was asked a similar question about when do you finish editing? When do you think it's finished? And, and, and her answer was, it's sort of finished when you send it off and, and it's the deadline. And then she said the first time she saw it on the shelf in Waterstone, she just wanted to take the scissors to it. Yeah. So, so there is a sense of not quite knowing when it's finished. What I've learned is that with a short story, you kind of reach a point, and my stories tend to be, you know, 3,000 words. You kind of reach a point where you know it's finished and the 19th time you've been through it, you're mm -hmm. taking out a comma or putting it back in. With the novel, it was really interesting because you could shuffle around quite big lumps of text, change the order or change a whole chapter. But also it reaches a point where you think either I'm, I'm sick of it or it's as finished as it's going to be. 
my case, there was a lovely line that, oh, it's won the Northbound Book Award. Well, we can edit it for publishing purposes, but it's not going to be a very different book. It's going to recognisably be this book. So the relief was, now I can go on to the next book because there's a danger, and I've got probably 170 short stories, there's a danger just on with files and files of half-finished work. So, yes, sometimes you just have to walk away and leave something for a few years. So one thing that just occurs to me on that, Lucy, because you've asked a useful question about the authors, how you do that, some of the pieces in approval were things I wrote five, six years earlier. But then, oh, that'll fit with this theme. Mm. So as long as you, whilst, whilst you do need to move on to the next project, I never delete anything, keep them all, because they can always come back in a different shape for a different purpose later on. Yeah. And similarly to what I was asking Sarah about how you visualise the characters. So she read, I think, the first bit of the short, her first short story in the collection. And I was getting a different visualization of the character to what she had in terms of physical appearance and that. How how do you feel about that in terms of sort of everyone who reads your your book, everyone who reads approval will will have a different visualization and imagination of of who they are and what they look like. Well, I quite like that thought actually. I like that when you know when you read it, you'll see something different, and and and. In, in a book like Approval, there isn't an enormous amount of description. So, for example, there's a character, uh, David's mate, Dougie, where I give a little bit of description so that you can tell them apart, but actually I differentiate by them having different accents. Mm. He's from Newcastle. Um, so that if I read it out, you can hear which character is speaking. And that was the reason for doing that. But I've actually carefully not described the characters very much because... I think it's quite nice to let the reader form their own mm. opinion and, and make their own picture. And it, for me, it's not important whether, for example, uh, David is tall or short, or you know what colour hair characters have. And it is quite fun when somebody says, oh, I, I didn't realise that he, he was going to look like this or sound like that. Mm. Well. The, this, the characters, so for example, I have sisters in real life and David has a different number of sisters and all of the characters are kind of people I picture in my mind who are not real people that might be an, an amalgam of other people mm. and I can see them in my mind but I haven't written down in much detail what they look like and, and I quite like that, following Sarah's thought, I quite like the idea that each person reads it sees different characters and of course they're, they're each reading a different narrative there are some people who think i hate this guy right from the get-go i'm not going to approve of him and there are others are thinking poor guy i hope he succeeds mm. but it's nice to leave the reader something to do yeah that's a good point because sometimes there's books isn't there that are very descriptive about you know the first chapter could be just describing the main character and it's sort of you get so much detail about it so it's exciting that you're leaving that bit of sort of you imagination to the reader you've you've put the creative side and sort of the plot but then you're like over to you you sort of imagine it in how you would see it that's really interesting um and it does that does incidentally come back to your earlier point Lucy about novels and short stories 
a novel sort of does have to have some kind of end. It yeah. is an expectation that that, and the end doesn't have to be as black and white and simple as you know finding out who the murderer was or they all lived happily ever after. But you kind of have an end in a novel, whereas short stories, because that might only be you know, the events that take place in in one hour, one conversation, a train journey, or a weekend. Very often, a short story can be left open-ended and give the reader a lot to think about. Mm. And maybe there's an interest in amalgam that approval has individual chapters where you think, "Oh, I wonder." And only when you put them all together can you get at the end of it say, "Well, I, I'm forming my judgment now." Yeah, yeah. And in terms of sort of the last year, did you did you use sort of the lockdowns to write more and be, you know, write more stories? And did you get any inspiration from that? In short answer, no, not really. Uh, I did, there was there was a bit of editing for approval and there's some work on, you know, sort of PR and marketing. I, my own view about a major historical event like COVID-19 or a, a war is that I think a lot of the best fiction is going to be written you know two or three years after when we've had time to settle and see what where it fits in history and what the consequences are I've quite deliberately not written new material about anything related to the specific you know, the circumstances in the world mm. or things that have happened externally but I have been writing more stories if you like, for the next collection, uh, when I've got to that stage of punching them together, that it turns out there are a dozen stories all about death because of events in my own family. Mm. Um, so I have been writing, but not at all close to what's going on in the world. It, it just doesn't feel like the right time to, to do that. And, and lots of people have, and some have done it very well, but it doesn't feel like a thing for me. Do you use sort of writing as a way to, um, like you said, then how some of the short stories, you know, the common theme is death because it's something sort of that's taken place in your personal life. Do you find that even maybe if you don't intend to, it sort of en ends up in in your in your works of what's happening in your in your life? Certainly, when writing short stories, uh, I'll try. You know, I, I won't read out chapters five, five, six, seven, and eight of my PhD thesis, but my general if you like, my thesis is that there is an intimate connection between the author and the text in a short story. Because I'm writing a short story now, I write the first draft of it in one sitting. So if this was the, so if I write it and it's, you know, the anniversary of my mother's death, or it's raining outside, or some, some event has taken place, that finds its way into the story and my mood finds its way into the story. So interesting. So, for, the, for example, there's a story, the first there's a school story. Uh, I wrote at Lancaster and I, after lots of years of wearing a suit and driving up down the M6, was thoroughly enjoying being on a university campus. And I wrote this story that it was simply a comedy. It was a light frippery of a piece. And then two or three years later, for different reasons and different times, I edited it and it became a much darker piece. Mm -hmm. I was quite interested with a novel. Well, you write a novel over a year or 18 months, two years, 
And so the characters have a greater independence and the story has a greater independence. If something happens in my life, it's not going to change the shape of a 250 page narrative. But if I sit down that day and write a story, it's going to be really powerfully impacted by that event that's taken place. So approvals are kind of interesting amalgam because there are individual episodes influenced by the mood I was in when I was writing about events that might have happened 10, 20, 30 years ago. And then at the same time, there's an overarching narrative that things were written and edited to fit a narrative that was well different to any of those circumstances. But it's, it's quite definitely different for a short story. And I, you can see something of the author, I believe, in quite a lot of short fiction. That's really interesting. And I think probably a lot of creative outputs, such as writing art, is, mood and emotion is sort of heavily reflected in. Um, mm. What would you, if, what would you describe yourself as an author sort of what type of author would you or like how would you describe you oh that's an interesting question because there's only one book isn't there so far so <laughs> i've not really got a kind of author profile and it's been quite fun you know oh, have you got any photographs and it's like well we've had some splendid holidays but no i'm normally the one behind the camera that i'm not sure there is an image of of me as an author something that i'm starting to see and and i've had some help from Saraband about this, thinking about the next book and, and the book after that. I think, I think there is something about a sort of grumpy old man, but there's also, uh, if you like, social comment, that if I am going to talk about you know, adoption, then I, it, that's a social issue. Mm. Um, I've, I've just sent off a story for an anthology, which is uh, about about the capitalization of the health service and i've written speculative fictions about how we treat old people mm. things that refer to earlier things that i've done in my life about uh, making people in the public sector redundant so I, there is a thread of if you like a commentary on social things that that might be a theme that runs through my work but I don't suppose there's enough of it yet out there that you could say there's, there's a profile that you could say, oh, yeah, he always writes this kind of thing. Mm. Because at the same time, there's, there's sort of anger and darkness in some of the work. And then a sense of humour that I appear not to share with hardly anybody where I put little jokes in for myself. And no one so far has said, oh, I found your work very funny. Only one or two people. But there's all sorts of little private jokes that I've hidden for my own amusement. Oh, that's interesting. So just jokes that you get. Just not... little. So, so, for example, there's a, there's a, there, are, there are lines from Monty Python sketches or little oblique nods and references to, to comedy quotes. Yeah. So interesting. Just hope, just hope that somewhere there's a little bit of a dialogue with the reader. So there's a... I wrote a short story called Communion, which begins with a fictionalised but largely accurate history of St. Teresa. Uh -huh. And in it, it, it says, you know, she set up a, she set up a, a convent based on austerity like the life of Jesus. 
in conflict with the prevailing attitude of the Catholic Church. And she was unexpectedly threatened by the Inquisition. And it sold a few hundred copies in Australia, of all places. And I just want someone to read it and say, but there's a, that you don't need an adverb in a sentence like that. Why did she not expect the Spanish Inquisition? Mm. And then hope that a penny drops and someone sees that I've hidden a little and joke in there. There are two or three, there are two or three of those in approval, but no one spotted them yet. I love that. I think that's so that's so clever to to do that, but also yeah, I'm gonna when I read it, I'm gonna be thinking, hmm, what what would John put in here? Is this it? Is this it? I'm looking <laughs> now because that's a very clever thing to do as a creative person. When I was making um, some films and things, I've never thought, oh, I'm gonna put that in for me and see if anyone gets it. But I might start doing like a little a little thing like that. I like that a lot. Um, I just I just love the idea that someone in Melbourne reading a little chat book, which is actually a it's actually a criticism of the Catholic Church. It's quite a serious piece that will just have a moment where they say out loud to themselves, oh, why didn't she expect the Spanish Inquisition? Oh, and have a little chuckle to themselves. Yeah. And I'll never know, but it's just hidden in there for somebody. Yeah. No, I love that. What are you currently reading at the moment? Or do you tend to not read as much as write? Oh, I, I always read... I, I read a lot of short stories. So with the Edgehill Prize every year, I get to read lots and lots of short stories. Why don't right you now, talk about that, the Edgehill Prize thing that you were talking about? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so Sarah and myself are part of a group of people who called the Narrative Research Group through Edgehill University. Ailsa Cox set up the Edgehill Prize, and it's a prize for published collection of short stories. And it's still got, I think, the biggest prize for a collection of short stories anywhere in these islands wow. um, and I, the last two years there have been about 50 new books and each year you read something and think oh wow that's brilliant and new and different and each year you read things and think oh, I wish I could write like that so that's yeah that's a uh, it's enjoyable to be involved in that so what will happen is at different times of the year I'll I'll have a selection of books to read to contribute to who's going to be on the long list and then try and read at least part of the this year there was it was a long long list wow yeah when that's finished I've, I'm, I'm having a break from if you like brand new short fiction mm. so in my current reading list I'm reading old short stories by M. John Harrison mm -hmm. I'm reading the novel Astral Travel by Elizabeth Baines who coincidentally is in that same group as well and just picking up stuff that I see obviously Sarah's is going to be on my my to be read as soon as I've got a copy of that so a mixture of, of short stories and novels and I try to just read everything read lots and lots of different things if somebody says oh have you read this person's biography or autobiography or have you read the, this novel I try and read a mixture because somewhere those things seep into your own writing maybe that maybe the further away from my own writing the more I enjoy something yeah I've got into um I can't remember the author which is really not helpful but it's it's called the president is missing I quite like sort of fiction around around sort of police and spies and sort of corruptness like that and and things like that. So I, I was reading that book, but also a lot of um, autobiographies of sort of 
journalists and um, sort of people like that who've got, you know, just interesting stories when they've been reporting things. Um, the Emily Maitlis one was interesting when, when she's talking about where she's been and what she's reported on and, and how it was behind the scenes rather than actually what, what people would see. Um, I'll, write, I'll write her on my list because I really like what she does as a journalist. Yeah, it's called Airhead because, um, and she had a bit of criticism about the title because it was like, well, why are you calling yourself an airhead? You're, you're an intelligent woman. But she was saying, it's the time in my head before I go on air where they say like 10 seconds and it's like, you, sometimes your mind just gets filled with air and you just can't remember what to say and things. But that's a really interesting one. Um, do you have a copy of the book there next to you? Do I wondered whether you just read sort of maybe the opening paragraph or See what, what might be a nice a nice bit to read yeah because the shape of it is each each chapter each story is prefaced by a page of an imaginary questionnaire please list all of your previous relationships giving the name the, the name and contact details of the of the person and the date the relationship began so there's these kind of things if I read you the, the first one of the main section that introduces a story called Motivation, and it gives you a flavour, and it's just, it's four paragraphs, so it's about a couple of hundred words. Yeah, lovely. So, so chapter one, Motivation for Adoption. And you have to imagine this being read in a sort of supercilious bureaucratic voice of one of those people that's simultaneously trying to be very cheerful whilst laying down the rules. Mm. Part one is all about exploring why you think you'd be a good parent. Are you a parent of older children already and want to extend your family, or will this be the first child in your household? Your social worker will be keen to understand your motivation to adopt, your pathway to the decision to apply, and your present circumstances, including whether you have or have had any children or stepchildren together or separately, brackets if applying as a couple. If you've attempted to have your own biological child, including IVF or any other fertility treatment, you must describe where you're up to in that process and your past experiences, brackets, e.g. any failed pregnancies. It is not allowed for an applicant for adoption to proceed concurrently with any fertility treatment, such as a private IVF programme. If there's any risk of pregnancy during the approval process, you must discuss this with your social worker before you proceed and you'll be expected to take precautions. So that sets up the first story, which now is it, it's a story called Motivation about... David and Cece's experience of IVF treatment. Mm. It, so that's the structure of it. And, and each part begins with these, this sort of tone of, oh, we're going to be very chummy and friendly, but we are going to ask you incredibly invasive and personal yeah. questions. And, and in one or two cases, yeah, maybe pointing out some of the absurdities that in real life if you apply for adoption you're not allowed to accidentally get pregnant while you're doing it because that would be a terrible way terrible waste of all form filling so there, there are little bits like that hidden in those pages that i hope the reader doesn't just skip past them oh, i don't want to read all that that's the next story yeah. and i also hope that by the time you've read nine of them the reader is tired of the process and yeah. becomes more sympathetic to david yeah no that definitely came across what you were saying would you do a follow-up to approval now obviously I've not read it yet but 
you know, the, list, the listeners at the moment, they don't know what happens at the end and we don't want to know what happens at the end. But would you would you do a follow up on, say, if they were approved or if they weren't approved and sort of what their journey did next? I think I very much like the idea of an alternative parallel version. Oh. With, so, you know, the, the, a short story version where maybe you, you swap out half of the stories mm-hmm. because, of course, it, You've got 14 chapters in a person's life, but some of them will be a single incident or a single event and and or tell us about previous relationships. But there might be characters who are only mentioned in a paragraph. Mm. And the, there are characters like Dougie, his friend. Well, there's no story about Dougie. How do they know each other? What's his background? Mm-hmm. So I like the idea of there being another parallel version in a kind of quantum way mm. that the two books might do the same thing Mm. but they might have outcomes and the reader might decide that they have changed their mind when they read more episodes or different versions of the same episodes so rather than than a follow-on i like the idea of something that simultaneously exists in a in a yeah in a quantum way that there ultimately there are as many different versions of approval as there are people that read it so if i double that number to be that they could end up being an infinite number of different books, the same title. I think that'd be quite fun. But I don't think I'm going to write a lot more new material on this because I'm now writing stories of a more sort of speculative nature about, uh, you know, after the disintegration, post-apocalyptic mm. dystopia stories. And th- there are other things I'd like to move on to different themes so the 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 themes of of old age and dementia and Mm. dying parents there's there's a lot of material there so i think quite soon i'll be leaving that whole series of david and cc stories alone but Mm. there's enough material for an interesting conversation about an alternative way of telling the same story so that that would be quite an interesting exercise or possibly, like it could be David and Cece, but instead of this, it could, I don't know. It could it could lead down something to do with their parents, or you know, if like you wanted the continuity of the characters. So, what are you writing currently? Are you, are so, you writing? so I'm writing I'm writing lots of short stories, um, mm-hmm. and I'm at that stage where there are two collections. Putting aside those related to this to approval, mm-hmm. uh, and very crudely, one has a theme of death, and one is is a bunch of stories that are sort of post-apocalyptic dystopia stories. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to, because it eventually worked last time, I'll wait until I reach a critical mass, and there's a bunch of stories that fit together well, mm. where the individual stories are strong enough, and there seems to be some connecting theme. And I've a bit of work to do to catch up with to to regain credibility with short story society of course because you know I'm a member of the European Network for Short Fiction Research and my first book has the word novel on the front of it yeah so I think the next the next couple of books are certainly going to be short stories yeah and you held the book up there but I've also got the front cover here why why did you decide on that front cover it's it's lovely I love it I, I really, really enjoyed the cover. So the process, and I was, I was really looking forward to being involved in it because 
in my background, I've done some sort of marketing and branding years ago. And I liked the idea of, oh, I'll be presented with alternatives and get involved in that process. And the guys at Saraband says, well, we'll instruct, you know, they work with me on a brief and instruct a designer called Daniel Gray. And they said, what we'll do is we'll show you some alternatives. And then it went very quiet. And a few weeks later, an email came from, from Saraband and they said, well, we've looked at it, at, at this. And I was like, oh, I wanted to play with that. I wanted to be involved. Mm. And I opened it and I just instantly just thought, yes, it's this. And in so many ways, the way that he's managed to draw together the sort of the, the bureaucratic red stamp mm. uh, superimposed over the signature of the, the name with a sort of cut out man or half formed character. I just thought it goes so well to the central idea of the identity of the individual mm. and almost everyone I've spoken to about it said they love the cover and people have different interpretations so so what I've learned from that process let the experts do what, what they do and the designer came up with something far beyond what I could have imagined so the answer to your question is I wasn't involved in it at all and it was a great answer so that that'll be what I'll do in the future just get just get Daniel to do the design. He appears to know what he's doing. Um, and so the book's out, approval. It's it's out. Um, can you just finally just say where people can get it from if they if they want to buy it from listening to this? Well, you can buy it from any any bookshop. Uh, buy it direct from Saraban Books. I think if you if you type in John D. Rutter approval, you'll find all the bookshops that have it. It's nice if you buy it direct from the independent publisher or, or from an independent bookshop, but it's it's definitely on the shelf in, in Waterstones, Preston, and you can buy it from you know you buy it online, mm. and of course you can download it. You can download it digitally. I, I always prefer to buy books that you can read, yeah. but it, it's hopefully quite easy to find. Yeah, well, it's been so interesting chatting to you about it about the themes of approval and um as john said if if anyone wants to buy it it's sort of everywhere that you can buy books um and it's called approval and it's by john d rutter thanks for coming on today john no i've really enjoyed it lucy and thanks for, for giving me the opportunity and I, I hope we'll speak again thank you thanks for listening and we'll see you next week To keep up to date with all things from a Lancashire Lass, follow on Facebook and Instagram at from a Lancashire Lass.